Let us pray together. Dear God, on this beautiful morning, we give you thanks for your word. Always fresh, always new. And we welcome your Holy Spirit to move afresh among us and to awaken us from our sense of separation from you and each other. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Five years ago in Chicago, I saw my all-time favorite music concert. Two dear friends treated me to a show at Soldier Field. Oh. On an absolutely perfect September evening. It was one of those crystal clear nights when everything seemed to be sparkling and glimmering with light. The stars above, the skyscrapers on the horizon, and all of those boats bobbing out there on Lake Michigan. The show opened with a band named Snow Patrol. And uh, I'd have to ask the younger folks in our church if they know who Snow Patrol is, because... I didn't. They were the warm-up band, and their job was very simple. They had come to warm up our crowd and to get us ready for the main attraction, another Irish band called U2. And later, a highlight of U2's concert that evening came when Bono, the lead singer, decided that it was time for church to begin. And he invited all 60,000 of us to sing Amazing Grace together. What a moment it was. Tis grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. In today's reading from Mark, John the Baptist also has a special mission to fulfill as well. His job is to come wake people up and to get them ready for the radically new thing that God is just about to do. To get them ready for the main attraction. And so John sets up a new hashtag on Twitter called repent, and head straight out into the wilderness to begin his ministry. And people from all over Judea and Jerusalem travel out to hear him. And when they arrive, they find a strange, strange prophet dressed in camel hair clothing and feeding on a diet of locusts and wild honey. Now, John may have a sweet tooth, but he's no sweet talker. His preaching is fierce and and, and piercing. 
He has come to disturb those who have grown complacent and comfortable with a world that is radically out of sync with God's intentions. Let me say that again. He has come to disturb those who have grown complacent and comfortable with a world that is radically out of sync with what God intends. And so he calls everybody to repent, to defect from their sinful lives and the unjust status quo, and to get ready for God's main attraction who is just about to come. Now the word in our story here for repentance is metanoia. You can hear that meta prefix also in metamorphosis. To repent is a greatly misunderstood verb. It does not mean, as we often think, to feel terrible about ourselves or to wallow in self-hatred. It means, rather, to turn from everything that is destroying us and to reorient our lives toward God. It means to start operating in a brand new way, God's way. It's what happens when we finally realize that we ourselves cannot save ourselves, and so we turn our lives toward the only one who can. And the interesting thing is that in Scripture, repentance is not just turning from personal brokenness, and it is. But it's also turning away from communal sin and systemic injustice. To repent means to defect from the violent and unjust empire around us and to finally find our home instead in God's kingdom of mercy and justice and shalom. In Matthew's account about John the Baptist, John calls everybody to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And here we learn that repentance is not just saying sorry today and doing the same thing again tomorrow. That's not true repentance. And in Luke's account, this leads, this repentance leads people to what? To share their possessions, to stop oppressing the poor, and to start acting justly. In other words, repentance isn't just something that happens up in our heads. Repentance brings change that begins in our innermost selves and then ripples out to change the way that we live together. And in Luke 1.17 it says that John's mission is to prepare, is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And it all starts with repentance. 
because it's only this radical kind of turning that allows people to actually recognize and to welcome Jesus when he comes 2,000 years ago and when he comes to each of us in our lives today as well. In Advent, we celebrate God's precious gift of Jesus. And with his birth, the dawning of God's new age of love and justice and shalom. But in our second Peter reading today, which is written in the late first century, after Jesus' ministry, after his death, after his resurrection, and after his ascension, we find the church now impatiently waiting for Jesus' final return so that he can finally come to set right all that is wicked and unjust and polluted in our world. And just like them, we too are waiting for the fuller coming of Christ's new heavens and new earth where righteousness and justice will finally be at home. I invite you to open your bulletin to the inside where you see that diagram in the second part of our service so that we can refresh our memory of a This diagram that we've looked at before, it actually comes from a book by um, Nelson Crable, Elvin's little brother, is that right? If you look at that diagram, you can see that we live right at the X, pulled between two overlapping ages. On the left side, the forces of violence and greed still pull us backward toward the age that has already been overcome by God and Jesus Christ. And all the empires of that rebellious age, whether Babylonian or Roman or empire, clamor for our allegiance, but they have no future. They are history. And then on the right side, we see the kingdom of God that Jesus has inaugurated. This kingdom is already here, but it's still not yet here in all of its fullness. But friends of this kingdom, God's empire of love and justice and shalom, there is no end. And the good news about This picture is that our job in this life is not to make God's kingdom come. It's coming with or without us. Our job is to notice and to join what God is doing in our world right now. What might that be? What is God doing in our world right now? We join what God is doing, setting free those in bondage, bringing hope to the hopeless, 
peace to the fearful, and above all, good news to the poor. And as we wait for God's new heaven and new earth, our second Peter reading in verse 11 calls us to live lives of holiness. Holiness, just like repentance, is another word that we almost never use anymore. Why is that? And yet our text calls us to live holy lives. I think one of the reasons that we don't use this word much anymore is that we connect holiness with moral purity, the quest for moral purity, and we often see it as a life especially focused on not doing certain stuff. Not stealing, not doing drugs, not cheating on our taxes or our spouse, not lying. Now, don't get me wrong, if our world stopped doing all those things, our world would be an infinitely better place. But this is not the real core of what holiness is about in Scripture, not doing stuff. In the Bible, not doing bad stuff is not what holiness is about. In the Bible, the most basic meaning of holiness is to be set apart or dedicated to God. Holiness begins when we finally understand to whom we belong. God. To be holy, it's been said, means that all that we are belongs to God. And that every aspect of our lives is to be shaped and directed toward God. Now the beautiful thing about Jesus is that He comes and helps us to shift the meaning of holiness away from simply not doing bad stuff and toward actually doing and being good. He shows us a holiness that moves us from not just not stealing. Do you understand me? Not just not stealing to actually being generous toward others. There's a world of difference between not just not stealing and sharing open-handedly with those around us. Jesus shifts holiness, moves it from not just not killing people, which by the way is very important, to actually loving them and praying for them. Jesus moves holiness from not just not exploiting the poor to lovingly working for their well-being, their shalom. I don't know about you and your experiences of holy people. Maybe you could take a moment to think about who are these holy people living holy lives that you know. 
My experience is that holy people show us that the effort to be holy itself is self-defeating. The more you try to be holy, the worst thing in the world is Todd seeing Todd trying to be holy to all of you. Right? And maybe holiness is the fruit of a life oriented toward God. And this is what happens as we draw nearer and nearer to God. Holy people, in my experience, are people who draw us into a deep sense of connection with God and with each other. And their holiness is not off-putting, but actually incredibly contagious. They help to wake us up from our terrible dream of separation from God and each other. This past week, many of us probably watched the video about what happened to Eric Garner at the hands of Staten Island police last July. And I want to speak very carefully because I know there are little ears listening. We saw a scene, if you watched it, and I believe every person needs to watch that video. Every adult. We saw a scene of utter callousness as a black man's cries were ignored and no one, even medics, offered him CPR. And then we saw that in spite of all of this video evidence, and you know, after Ferguson, we were saying we need video evidence. Well, we got it. And it wasn't enough. That, watching that video woke me up. It showed me that those of us who are white live in a world of privilege where we never have to worry about that kind of horrifying treatment to ourselves or to our loved ones, our children. But for our neighbors of color, this is a daily reality. Recently, I was talking to a black neighbor on Orange And he told me about a frightening encounter with police that happened almost right in front of our home. One of the marks of white privilege and power, it's been said, is the ability to ignore the cries and the pain of those who are hurting. The cries of, I can't breathe didn't just begin last July, but I confess that I've been ignoring them for years. How about you? And Jesus teaches us that when one person can't breathe, none of us can breathe. So what's the antidote? Radical repentance and a turning toward God and those whom God cares about. 
a new commitment to engage in prayer and the disciplines through which God can transform us. And perhaps, just as importantly, the building of relationships with people of color here in our community. For me, our weekly community meal has become the place where I keep meeting Christ and where He continues to confront and transform my own deep racism and class prejudice. You know, there's a lot of Mondays that I just don't want to go. It's hard. But I've begun to see that God called me to this church to be part of a community that's committed to this kind of relationship building and engagement over the long haul. We need the community meal just as much as the folks who are there need it. That kind of conversion and metanoia and transformation. This past week, I found myself noticing how John the Baptist comes to disturb those who have grown complacent and comfortable with a world radically out of sync with God's intentions. Is that us? If John were to appear in Lancaster in Penn Square this week, or maybe right in front of our church doors out here on East Chestnut, what would he say to us? What valleys need to be lifted up? What mountains need to be made low? What rough places need to be made smooth? Amen.